Hey, go ahead. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to 1 Peter. If you don't, no big. Uh, you also can go to your device, go to the ESV version. If you go to a Bible app or something like that, if you have that on your phone, and you want to go to 1 Peter chapter 1, we're just going to be looking through four verses, I think, 22, 3, 4, uh, four verses. Math is not my strong suit. Um, four verses this morning, 1 Peter 22 through 25. And that's what we're going to spend our time on this morning, finishing up this uh, Advent season and just discussing hope. And uh, Peter wrote this letter. So we're, we're on the back end here of his first chapter of this letter. And he, and he wrote, this, wrote this letter to churches that were really having a hard time, uh, to a bunch of different churches in different regions that were suffering. And they were learning how to live um, in their, really their newfound Christian faith. They were, they were learning what it meant to, to be a follower of Christ, to live in a hostile environment. And to live in a place that was going to be difficult, that was going to test their faith, was going to cause them to go through trials and hardships. And Peter wants to give them words of encouragement. He wants to remind them of who saved them. He wants to remind them that the hope that they have because of the gospel, which is what we call the good news of Jesus, because they have that hope, they can endure the things that they're going through. And not only that, not only can they just merely endure the things that they're going through, but they can actually grow in Christ-likeness. A fancier word for that is called holiness. They can, they can grow in holiness because they have this hope that's, that's grounding them through all of these things. And so we're just going to look at the tail end of chapter one in 1 Peter, and we're going we're gonna to just sort of wrap it up by talking about um, some of the ways that, that Peter uh, tells us that this hope can, can, can help us, help us live help us become more like Jesus and actually have lives that are grounded uh, in hope. So if you, if you go to Netflix, and I'm sure a lot of you have been doing that uh, over the past few weeks, or at least over the past week, you will find approximately uh, 927 movies called A Christmas Hope, right? That's not why I named the sermon this. Um, and we, we make fun of that, right? Um, and by the way, let me just, I, let me qualify that because um, I'm not anti-Netflix Hallmark movies, right? Um, I probably watched, I don't want to look at my wife right now because she would just read her uh, Kindle while I was watching, but um, I probably watched, you know, seven or eight Hallmark Christmas movies this season, right? Um, all, for, all for preparation of this sermon, obviously. <laughs> um, so I'm not anti-Hallmark Christmas movie by, by any stretch, but it's, it's interesting for us, right, to watch these movies and my mind starts to process and think. We can make fun of them, right? They're kind of the brunt of some of our jokes. Um, but if we're honest, it's actually the life that we're all striving for in, in some ways, right? You know, we, we, see this, we see this, you know, high-powered, you know, high next-level exec, you know, that's like just struggling life in the city. She ends up, you know, getting a call from, you know, the farm back home in the small town, you know, she goes back to the small town. Her parents are there. They obviously own a Christmas tree farm. <laughs> the struggle is real now because more people buy trees from Home Depot than buy the real trees. So they're struggling. And because of all of the, you know, marketing and management skills that she has from her high-powered gig in New York City, she's able to sort of dig them out of the hole. And then lo and behold, the boyfriend that it never happened with in the 12th grade comes walking back into the scene and believe it or not, he works for the parents' Christmas tree farm, right? Um, I'm only describing every Hallmark movie that's ever been made, right? Um, 
But this is what happens in those movies is that everything works out. And in the end, it's a win-win. Everybody benefits. You know, the, the, the high-powered executive woman who's lost her way finds her way. The Christmas tree farm is saved. The parents have enough money to retire. The dude comes back in the picture. It's marriage, children, and it's happiness ever after. And, and we, we're snarky about it, but yet it's something that in the, maybe not even the deepest recesses of our heart we, we long for. We long for a win-win in life, right? We, we love, and we love that phrase. We love that phrase, win-win. I hear that all the time, right? It's a win-win for us, Ronnie. Um, because a win-win is usually something that is good for you and it's good for others so that everyone benefits. And so what the Apostle Peter tells us in the last four verses here in his letter that we're going to read here in a second to churches, again, like I said, facing all kinds of trials, facing all kinds of hardships, that when we pursue, this is Peter's point, when we pursue the right kind of hope, everybody benefits, right? And so what we want to ask this morning is, well, how does this hope originate within us? And Peter's pretty clear. He tells us that it originates with the gospel, the good news, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Christmas itself, as we're gathering here on Christmas Eve, we understand it to be the story of the gospel. And so as a, as a way to encourage us through, through all the trials, through all the hardships that we've experienced this year, that we're going to experience next year, Peter offers us the hope of the gospel. And in some ways, he explains why it's the win-win that we long for in the depths of our soul. So here's the question I want to answer is, how does the gospel, the good news of Jesus, how does it accomplish this? How does it accomplish this? I'm going I'm I'm to point to three ways that Peter unpacks. So let me pick up and read the passage in verse 22. And this is what Peter says. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Got to get those glasses, babe, for Christmas. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Verse 24, he quotes this, this old passage from the Old Testament. He says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that we preached to you. So we're going to look at three ways that the gospel, the good news of Jesus... Um, offers us this particular hope that we see in pockets, that we see on Netflix, that we see with Hallmark, but doesn't deliver the goods. And in fact, it doesn't really make it any good for us. It doesn't benefit anybody else. And in fact, you can go so far as to say that it, it, it puts us in an unsafe place. And it puts others in an unsafe place. If it's grounded in something collapsible, if, it, if our hope is grounded in something ethereal, if it's grounded in something that can't bear the weight of the hope that you and I want, right? So here's the first thing Peter tells us um, how the gospel does this. The first thing is that the gospel purifies our souls, Peter says, when you pick up in verse 22 there. Peter says the pathway to obtaining a purified soul comes from being born again, which leads to a life then, so first comes the born again part, that leads to a life that lives in obedience, Peter says, to God's truth. Well, what, what does it mean to be born again? When I, when I was saved in the 1970s, they had all these like born again stickers. I mean, everybody had a born again sticker on the car, assuming that everybody knew what that meant, 
right? Well, what, what does that actually mean? What do we mean when we say born again, right? This line is so foundational to Christianity. Um, we don't, almost don't even give it a second thought. Um, it, it actually might even be negative to some of you. I mean, I've seen the way those born agains act. I see the way they handle themselves. Um, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I like the attitude. I don't know if I like the presumption. I don't know if I like the heart that I've gotten from those who claim to be born. And maybe it's negative for you. Um, But here's what it means from a spiritual perspective. For something to become born again, it, it must be in a state of unbornness. So when Peter talks about being born again, it's talking really about going before that or going underneath that. It's saying, hey, you were in a state, your soul was in a particular place where it needed to be rebirthed. It needed to be reborn. That's, that's making a statement about the place that you were in and this place that I was in that necessitated something to be rebirthed in you for the sake of this hope that we're talking about, right? I don't want to say the word dead on Christmas Eve, right? But I, ju- I just did, actually, right? Um, I don't know if you guys have been to the Ashland Shrines Theater. I remember, my daughter's here this morning, and uh, she's visiting from Chicago. Sorry, babe. Um, but I remember when we first moved to Ashland, and the theater was still open back then in its previous state. And we went, I, I think it was open for like three more weeks, and we're like, hey, let's go see Toy Story 3. It's going to be sweet. And we, we, uh, we got there, and I still have some of the stickiness on my shoes <laughs> from 13 years ago. And um, I remember we walked in, and we're like, do we want popcorn? And we were looking at the popcorn machine, and we went, nah, maybe not. You know, maybe we don't want that. And I remember we walked upstairs because it's like it's in the upstairs theater. I'm like, all right, wow, balcony. That's sweet. We have, it's a multiplex, right? We got this whole thing going on. We walk upstairs, again, all sticky-footed, you know, trying to get up the stairs. And um, there's all these buckets all over the theater because, like, rain, you know, all the rain, the condensation was dropping. And um, I just remember thinking, like, man, I love old theaters. I love just falling apart, decrepit old theaters. And I looked at my daughter and I said, man, we are never coming here again, right? <laughs> and three weeks later, it shut down for what looked like for good, right? And then a few years ago, they started this campaign. They said, we're going to redo it. We're going to redo the Ashland Shrines Theater. And if you've been in it lately, man, it is sweet, I mean, that theater looks incredible. They did this amazing job. Why did they do need to do an amazing job to it? Well, because it was sticky before. Because it was falling apart. It was drafty. Like, I was wet when I walked out of the theater, like, that morning, right? It was a mess. It was dead. The theater was dead, as, uh, you know, Charles Dickens would say about Jacob Marley. The theater was dead. It needed to be rebirthed. This is what Peter's getting at. In order for your soul to be purified by the gospel. That's the essence of it. It needs to be born again. It needs to come back from the dead place that it's in. Peter is saying that the result of becoming right with God is obedience to God. So this born againness, right? It doesn't always work out perfectly either because Christians are far from perfect. But what it leads to is now, because our hearts have been rebirthed, we've been born again, we can now become obedient to God. And that has a purifying and a cleansing, an ongoing purifying and a cleansing effect on your soul. So how do we become people who obey God from the right heart? How does that happen? How does this born againness take place? Well, the inner workings of your soul have to become transformed by Jesus because without Jesus, here's the, this is why it all comes back to Jesus. Without Jesus, your soul, it's, it's corroded. It's corroded. 
It's corrupted. It's like a swimming pool that hasn't been serviced. We have this hot tub and we have to service it with chemicals because if we don't service it with chemicals, it just becomes corroded. It becomes like the Ashland Shrines Theater, right? It's not something that you want to get in. It's not going to be good for you. It's not going to be safe for you. So listen to this. Before Jesus purifies our souls through the forgiveness of our sins, we have all kinds of stuff corroding our hearts that make them, and I like the way, I like, I like to phrase it this way, that make them unsafe for us and for others. Unsafe. Why? Because they're corroded. Just like the Ashland Shrine's kind of unsafe for me and the kiddo when we walked in there. But when we repent of our sins, when we believe the gospel of Jesus, we begin this reborn, rebirthed journey of obedience to the truth. It's putting us in the place that God made us to be in. And here's what's interesting, all right? Follow me here. Before we are born again in the truth, we are incredibly obedient people. Y'all are obedient, right? We, it, it, it's second nature to us. It's, it's second nature to us to disobey God and be obedient to everything else, right? We're incredibly obedient people, but we obey our own truth. We obey a bunch of ideologies and principles and rules and passions that might, by the way, have some temporary benefit to us and to others, right? But when the bottom falls out, and inevitably the bottom falls out. They leave us in the dust without any proper hope to ground our lives in. If you guys have ever watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy, if you've read the books, there's this character called Gollum. And he used to be somebody that lived in the Shire. He was a hobbit. He was somebody that lived this life and he got corrupted, right? He found the ring of power. And what happened was when he found this ring of power, and this ring of power was not meant for any one person because of the corrupting influence it had. But what happened when Gollum found this ring is it just changed him. All of his passions are now wrapped up in this ring. It captivates him, which is why he calls the ring, what's the famous line? My precious. But here's the issue with that, is that that captivation is also what holds him captive. And so in a sense... We're, we're like Golem. Our hearts are corrupted by our obedience to all the wrong passions. We are captivated by things that in the end, whether it feels like it or not all the time, they hold us captive. What the gospel does, what the good news of Jesus does, is it purifies our souls by reordering our passions and removing the corroding influence they have on us and on others. And this releases us to real hope at that point. So the gospel purifies our souls. Here's the other thing that it does, according to Peter, is it purifies our love when we go here to the second part of, of 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Peter's talking to the church, remember, he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again. Not of perishable, but of imperishable seed. So Peter knows that we weren't meant to go it alone. We need one another. We need to serve one another. And one of the marks of someone who has been born again will be a growing and authentic love for our neighbors. A growing and an authentic love for our neighbors. Now, I, I use the word authentic on purpose. I say authentic because Jesus wants our love to not, to, to be something that comes from the right motivations, right? He doesn't just want it to be a strong affection. Which that, that's not bad. 
But, but, but our love, if it comes from the right motivations, is going to be the kind of love that doesn't turn on that person and turn on us. He doesn't want you to merely have a hallmark love, which leads to a hallmark hope, right? When he redeems us from our sins, when he purifies our soul, I'm losing my voice now, this also purifies our love. It purifies our love, right? He makes it, listen to this, so that we can love others the way that he loves us, which is different than the way that we naturally snap back into the kind of love that we have. And so from this, from, from this beautiful heart of sacrifice, rather than the, this, this heart of self-serving, this is the way that our love can be transformed by the gospel. I, I mean, if you've ever experienced, maybe you haven't, but if you ever have experienced being loved by a person with a, with a pure heart, somebody who's been changed by the gospel, somebody who's been changed by the gospel, it, it's, not, it's not perfect by any means, certainly, but what you receive are acts of love and surface that are they're free of manipulation. They're free of transaction. They're full of what the Bible calls good fruits, right? See, someone who's been changed by the gospel has the ability to love in a way that says, I'm going to consider your needs before my own without the expectation that I'm going to receive anything in return. It's not that we don't want to receive anything in return. It's not that when we, when we love somebody, we don't want to be loved back. That's ridiculous. No, that's the, way our heart, that's the way God designed our hearts, right? But the motivation for it is based on the motivation of God loving us, sending Jesus who loved us who sacrificed for us, who humbled himself before us. He made it so that our hearts could love him and love others. What you experience is an imperfect but incredible model of Jesus's love. It's like, you know what it is? It's like love without preservatives. And I like, I like preservatives, right? Um, I remember the first time I had pure maple syrup on my pancakes. And I was like, this ain't Aunt Jemima, right? Um, man, maple syrup. I don't know if you've had it. Maybe you love it. It's thin. It's kind of runny. It's not filled with all those preservatives, right? Um, what I got, though, was the taste of pure maple, right? Right from the tree. I love Aunt Jemima, but she, she's not really pure maple syrup. She's sugary glue, if we're going to be honest, right? I don't work for the company, so I can say that. Um, it's not real. It's not really from the maple tree. It's manufactured. Aunt Jemima wants you to think you are eating pure maple syrup. I don't know where I'm going with that uh, illustration now that I just said it. <laughs> I do, I'm kidding. Um, but the purity of the gospel is that it purifies not only your soul, but it purifies your soul in order to love in such a way that magnifies the love of Christ for you and for others. It's a unique kind of love. It's a nothing else like it kind of love, right? And so Peter is saying like, this is the hope that you have to look forward to when you're somebody who is being transformed by the gospel. You have the soul being purified. You have this love being purified. Here's the final thing he says. He says, your hope is being purified. 24, all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this last part is so beautiful. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So if we go all the way back to the beginning of this chapter, Peter talks about 
this living hope. And a living hope is a hope that had to be rebirthed. It had to be birthed. Um, and it was. It was birthed. It was rebirthed all the way back in Bethlehem. Jesus was born. Listen to this. It may sound like just another trite Christmas thing that you hear every Christmas Eve and you're just tired. Follow me here for a minute. Jesus was born to offer you an embodied hope. An embodied hope. A personal hope. A real hope, a flesh and blood hope. Jesus came to offer you an embodied hope. And the result is that you then, if you receive it, you will embody a living hope. You will be the embodiment of a living hope. Not in the same way that Jesus is, right? Because you can't save anybody's soul. But you will reflect that embodied hope that Jesus said. Peter, this is what Peter's saying. He's saying that this is the good news. This is the good news that was preached to you. A disembodied hope is what all the other passions and pursuits that you keep obeying, those truths that you keep obeying, that's what it's going to provide for you at the end. It's really a disembodied hope, an ethereal hope, right? That's a hallmark hope, right? It's not a reborn hope that leads to a person named Jesus who was born so that you would have eternity with him to ground your hope in. Right? Because we don't hear about what happens after the end credits go with the Hallmark movie, right? It, it just turns out that not everything is like fairy tale-ish and Disney World-ish as we probably hoped it would be. But we don't get that. We just get the end credits, right? When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to be, when it comes to having a soul and a love that's being purified and a hope that's being purified, you get the hope in this life, and then you get it with the end credits. You get it beyond, right? And that's what you want. That's what I want. So what does embodying this living Christmas hope look like? Well, a couple things. Number one, your loves and your passions are constantly being reordered. They're being reordered, right? You're, you're constantly being called by friends, family, church family, your time with the Lord. The Holy Spirit is constantly saying, hold on. Are you obeying the wrong truths? Are you stuck giving your life and your heart away to the wrong passions? They're actually unsafe for you and unsafe for others. That's one of the beauties that we have with Jesus. Number two is that your motivations become less about you. They become less about everything that you want. Everything that in your mind, in your eyes, you pursue as a way to derive the most success, the greatest comfort. Those things that eventually don't work out those things that eventually turn us into the people that we probably despise when we see them in others. And number three, you, you don't take a step, Peter tells us through this first chapter, without the presence of Jesus in your life, right? You're never alone. You're never alone. So as you are somebody who has been changed and transformed by the gospel, and that gospel is purifying your soul, your love, and your hope, it's creating a more obedient person to those things which are actually true. Man, there are some things going on in your life of which you are never walking through alone. Because that's the gospel. The gospel doesn't say, hey, come to Jesus and live your best life now. That's not the gospel. The gospel is come to Jesus because without him, there's no life for now or eternity. 
the beautiful simplicity of that. And it's also a life that we have to count the cost of because it means an end to pursuing those other passions that collapse on us. This is the good news that is being preached to you right now on Christmas Eve morning. And here's the thing. The biggest part of this win-win is that God gets all the glory. Now, that's the most hopeful reality for you and me. That's just not clever pastor talk. But when the gospel is alive in you and hope is alive in you because the gospel is alive in you, like we've talked about, God gets the glory and your heart grows in joy because you finally have something that lasts forever. You finally give to, you get to live out the end credits of the movie scene that you've always wanted to be in. The Hallmark movies end before you see what really happens. What happens is that the high-powered exec has all kinds of relationship issues because they didn't resolve things from what happened in high school. That's what happens, right? There's all kinds of family drama because just fixing, just getting, you know, just getting the Christmas tree short farm from the red to the black, like doesn't fix all the relationship issues within the family, right? There's all kinds of drama. You know, there's still a chance the Christmas tree farm is gonna go bankrupt, right? Those things can still happen. That's the part that we don't see. So in the end, when you see a Netflix special called A Christmas Hope, you kind of go, nah, I see what they're driving at, but I need to see part two. I need to see part three. I need this to be a Netflix series. I need to be able, I just need to be something I can binge over the holidays because I'm not convinced that in an hour and 10 minutes, all this stuff just gets fixed. All this stuff is magical, right? A Christmas Hope is one that doesn't end on December 26th. Peter is saying that there is something eternal that is available to you. Can you imagine turning down something eternal? Can you imagine that? So if if there's any kids in the audience this morning, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But kids, can you imagine if, if somebody said, I have a toy for you that lasts forever, and you just go, nah, give me the one that's gonna break the day after Christmas instead. Like, it's just absurd. Like, there's not a kid... I believe that every kid in this room is bright enough to say, that's the toy I want. That's the one I want, right? Every Christmas, we get another confrontation with eternity. We get another confrontation as broken people with something that doesn't break. It's amazing. Another confrontation with the living hope of Jesus, who Peter says his words remain forever. This is the hope that you long for. This is the hope that's available to you through the kindness of Jesus Christ who didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, Paul tells us in Philippians, but he lowered himself as he condescended down to us so that we might know him. He's the one that wants to purify your soul, purify your love, purify your hope so that you have something that isn't related to what we see in these Hallmark movies, that isn't related to something that is just gonna end up disappointing you in 2024, but it's gonna be something that can be built upon because the foundation of it is eternal. The foundation of it is built on an eternal love that God has for all of those who come to him and say, I don't got it, I need you, I'm a sinner, 
I repent to you. I need you. I want to live for you. Help me make sense of my life, Jesus. That's what, that's what Jesus offers us this morning. Go ahead and turn your Bibles here as we go into communion to 1 Corinthians 11. Because when we take communion, this is what we're celebrating. This is the life that we are embracing. And there's no better time than Christmas Eve to celebrate communion. Paul is talking to the church about communion. He, he tells us, he kind of tells us what to do with it. Uh, as we pick up in, in verse 23, and he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it and remember to me. Now listen to what he says here as you go to chapter 11, verse 26. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there it is. There's There's the anchored hope for us right there. We take communion. We we come up. uh, We're handed the bread. We're handed a cup. And as we eat the bread and we drink this cup, we're reminded of what Christ did for us when he sent his son. We're reminded of the eternal hope that we have. We're reminded that this life, though it's filled with sorrow, it's not the end. There is something waiting for us. And that's what we've been celebrating all month when we talk about Advent, is this season of waiting and anticipation. So as you eat this bread, you drink this cup, you're saying, Lord, I trust you. I'm waiting for the final fulfillment, for the final culmination of everything you did on the cross so that I could have peace with God, so that I wouldn't have to die in my sins, so that I could have life, as Jesus said, and have it more abundantly, so that you can have something eternal to bank on, rather than being snarky about a Hallmark movie of which, in fact, you actually are patterning your life after. You just don't know it. This is the life and the hope and the beauty that is offered to us on Christmas Eve morning and all mornings because of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray. And so we have a station here, a station here, and we have one in the back. Um, If you are somebody who has given your life to Jesus, this is a moment for us to commemorate and celebrate his death and resurrection. If that's not you, that's okay. We'd ask that you not partake, but that as I pray, you would think about the words that were preached to you. Not because they're my words. I am a three out of 10 preacher at best. Some of y'all are gonna say that was, that was arrogant, Ronnie. Fair. That's not the point. The point is the words that were given to you from this book are words of life that can change, purify your soul, your love, and your hope. But they require you to see yourself as who you really are. To see that you're a sinner that is in need of God's grace. And you know what? You can get in on that this morning. So, If any of you sit behind and you just want to reflect on that, that's okay. No one's looking at you funny. Um, We're eager to see you come into the kingdom of God as, as what it's called in scripture by repenting of your sins, believing the gospel, and knowing that you have an eternal hope that is guaranteed. It is secure. Let me pray. God, we thank you for Christmas because... It reminds us that we have a hope that is finally eternal in our lives. It's not breakable.
It's not the stuff of Hallmark movies. It's something that anchors us. It's something that as our souls and our love and our hope is being purified by the gospel, Lord, we can look to you when we face the trials in our lives and the hardships in our lives. And there are so many of those. So Lord, we, you know, as, as we... Even, as we you know, even reflect on our lives this morning, as we contemplate 2024, even those of us who maybe have had a great year of blessings, we're, we're, just caught, we're caught up when we start thinking about the things that aren't right, thinking about the relationships that are unresolved, um, thinking about the brokenness that exists in, in our families, thinking about the sickness um, that exists, thinking about the unrest uh, in the Middle East, um, thinking about the war, uh, the, the Ukrainian war, these, these things that are ongoing that we don't get resolved in. And we, we look back, we stand back and we look at these things. And we say, Lord, is there any hope? Are you alive? Are you working? And Christmas reminds us that you are. Because nobody thought anything was happening that night, that quiet night that you were born in that stable to two poor, broken-down parents who didn't know what was going on. And yet, everything in the world was happening on that night. So we're, remember, we're grounded in that. We're reminded of that. We even catch our breath a little bit in that. You got everything under your control, even though we don't see it 95% of the time. Christmas reminds us that you are trustworthy and that you are working in ways that we can't see, but you are calling us to believe in you, to put our faith in you, to put all of our trust in you. So Lord, I pray for anybody that hasn't done that, that you would draw them to you, that you would give them salvation today, that they would recognize their need for you. They'd recognize their need for grace. They would receive it. They would ask for it that you would shower them with it or that their lives would be changed as they enter this new year. Lord, for us that have done that and are feeling despondent and are feeling like it's been a year where you felt very quiet, you felt very out of commission as we look at our lives or around the world, Lord, we, we pray that you would show yourself to be here, to be near us. Lord, we pray for your presence. We pray for the encouragement we receive from your word that your word lasts forever. Peter, who was an eyewitness to your resurrection, who saw you, who is writing these words to churches like ours to encourage us, I pray that these words would encourage us as we take of this bread, as we drink of this cup. Lord, I pray that you'd strengthen us for the road ahead. I pray that you'd nourish us by your gospel once again. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for all the women and men here, Lord, that are here, um, that you brought through these doors, whether they realize it or not, that are hearing this word that is good for their life and their light and their salvation. Lord, would you do this work in us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.